Well, it's a Here we are. good thing we got started early because it is 3pm, which is our original starting it. time. Yes. And so that took an hour to troubleshoot. Um, yep. Okay. Do we just pretend like the first hour never happened? Yes, I think let's do that. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. So you are on day three of your stay home notice. I am, yeah, uh, I got back on the 25th in the morning uh, and I have recently moved into a hotel room to serve out the rest of my stay-home notice because uh, basically, you know, I've got family living at home and I don't want to expose them unnecessarily to the virus so I think a hotel is probably the best option Uh, although there are issues with the Wi-Fi here This podcast proudly brought to you by Holiday Holiday Inn Express Yeah Come for the view, stay for the shitty Wi-Fi Yep, um... Yeah, the Wi-Fi basically took an hour to troubleshoot. It did, and even now it's still, you know, uh, borderline. Okay. It's okay now, I think, yeah. Okay, uh, we just have to get through like 40-ish minutes, which is when the free Zoom meeting will... Oh, no, wait, if it's two people, Zoom meetings are an unlimited length. Oh, um, is that right? Yes, actually. So these these are the things that you know we are. I'm sure everybody is slowly discovering. <laughs> um, yeah, but actually, uh, my company kind of we we got away lucky-ish with a lot of this because we opened a KL office uh, it, at the start of February. So right. we've been like rolling out kind of like remote working things here and there. So we actually got like a Zoom Pro membership in like mid-Feb um, to coordinate like meetings between Singapore and KL and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, and yeah, and I think in like January, we actually switched over from a landline office phone to a VOIP office phone. Um, oh, I see. For okay. the same reason, because we expected that we would need to call KL from Singapore and route KL calls to Singapore. Um, mm-hmm. So effectively, people, you know, when they call our office line these days, they get me at home. Is Right. <laughs> yeah, and then they'll call, be like, can I speak to so-and-so? I'm like, um, <laughs> we, are, we are not in the same place. Here is his <laughs> mobile number. <laughs> it's, basically, it's basically how it goes, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean there ha- there have been some issues you know associated with moving back as well. For one, you know the whole credit card situation tends to take a bit of time to sort out when you right. get back. My cards actually, are not a- allowing me to buy anything online. Actually, yeah, out of curiosity, so you have a US credit card but not a Singapore one? No, I do have a Singapore one. The problem is it's tied to my old cell phone number, which is a Singapore cell phone number, and right. I've just spent the whole morning trying to change the. You know the OTP and SMS address to right, my current right. US number, but then I can't buy anything online. So you know the food here is okay, but it's not a lot, and I've been craving McDonald's. <laughs> As, you know, McSpicy doesn't ex- occur in the US, so oh yeah, that's um, true. I can't, I can't get my damn McSpicy. Yeah, that is true. Um, out of curiosity, right? How strict are the terms of the stay home notice? Because, for example, right, if you open the door of your hotel room and mm-hmm. you lean out are you technically violating 
Does they have notice? That is a good question, and that is something that I had an interesting experience with yesterday. So uh, okay. I was, you know, they, they put food at your door, you 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 know, and they knock on your door. So you open the door, you bring in your food. And yesterday, as I was leaving my food basket out, you know, once I, I after I finished my dinner, I saw my neighbor uh-huh. uh, doing the same thing, and so we struck up a conversation. And within two minutes, the front desk called saying, "Hi, you know, you can use the phone in your room to." call between rooms for free so I don't know whether someone down the hall complain or whether or not they've been you know they have some CCTV camera monitoring <laughs> whether or not people's doors are open because it's really fucking scary I mean if you stuck your head out and you didn't see anybody else uh, it sounds like they are watching the hallway I guess I, I don't know I mean maybe one of my other neighbours must have called the front desk to complain or something I don't know it's I mean, how, <laughs> it's how, just how, so weird how would they know like that anybody like pass by or stick no but you up? know if someone's a, someone was in their room and they heard conversation in the hallway and they didn't like it maybe they just called the front desk to say hey you know there's some noise going on there can you investigate right okay yeah <laughs> interesting Who's your yeah, stay-home neighbor, by the way? I think he's an NUS student. Because he asked oh. me if I was in NUS. I said, yes, but a long-ass time ago. Okay. But I mean, I, I feel yeah. like that's probably true of like 20% of the Singapore population. That is a good point. Yeah, okay. uh, I, I do know that I have colleagues in the same building as I am right now. Uh, okay. But I have no idea where they are. <laughs> because right. uh, this is this is a funny story. So the... Uh, uh, well, previously known as the Tropical Marine Science Institute, but now they're called the St. John's Island National Marine Lab. Okay. Uh, they've been nationalized. So they've been out at sea for the last five weeks uh, surveying the North Pacific Ocean. Right. They were on a vessel, one of those uh, you know research vessels. I think the vessel may have been involved in the MH37 uh, search and rescue operation. Anyway, they were on that vessel. They were out in the North Pacific Ocean for the last five weeks, and they were coming back. And so half of the team are in the same building as I am right now, serving their stay-home notice. Interesting. Okay. But I have I have no idea where they are physically in this building. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. you know. But yeah, it's a whole bunch of scientists basically cooped up along with me in this exact same building, which okay. is I think very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I am also in a hotel, but for completely different reasons. Um, Fair enough. Basically, we had a very, very well-timed staycation. Um, <laughs> yeah, my sister graduated last year, and then the whole family went to Europe um, for her graduation and to help her move out. Actually, which was the primary, which was the primary motivation because moving out is always a pain. Um, the The graduation, I think, was supposed to happen in like July or August, but then. New management came in at the school. Uh, it's a private school, and then the school like got bought or, or taken over by another um, institution, and they basically moved the graduation. It's a summer semester graduation, but they moved the graduation to December. Oh. Uh, so there was no actual graduation ceremony. So the music department just improvised a small one, literally. <laughs> Literally, like, a student leader just cobbled together an event. And then the head of the music department, like, bought, like, 30 flowers. And, and then, like, gave them out one by one. 
Um, and that was kind of it. I mean, fair enough. Yeah. Holy um, cow. Yeah. So, anyway, we went to move her out, and then we went on like, a trip around Europe, and we booked all our hotel stays mm-hmm. through Hotels.com, and um, that was actually sufficient to get like Hotels.com like gold reward status or something. And so we had three <laughs> discounted nights that we had to use by May, um, which is why we booked a hotel. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, I mean, we had no idea at the time that it was going to be, uh, you know, an interesting time in history, shall we say. Indeed. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I will say that if, if it hadn't been like lockdown season... I mean, we are not really in a lockdown in Singapore, at least. Um, no, not, not, not in the very least bit, no. Yeah, it's really not a lockdown. Although with the law changing now, you could get fined for, I think, more than t- 10 people, is it? Gatherings with more than 10 people. Yeah. We are moving in that direction increasingly. Yeah, so. but I mean, in Germany... Um, so my sister, you know, got a got an email, I think, from a friend in Germany, and mm-hmm. she said, the way it is, is that no more than people... No more than one person from up to two different households may meet outside. Literally, literally, you can only be outside with members of your own household or one person from your household can meet one person from another household. Right. And uh, that is very, very specific. Um, Yes. And because my sister went to school in Freiburg, which is like on the Swiss-French-German border... Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, the Swiss have... I haven't been following the news super closely, but from what I kind of understand, the Swiss have kind of given up. They're just not <laughs> doing it. Seriously? Anything. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, Singapore had um, started to impose the stay, ho- the stay more notice on arrivals from Switzerland very early on because... And the stated reason was mm-hmm. that um, these countries... I think it was... The UK, I want to say the UK, the Netherlands, and Switzerland were the three that were singled out. Um, right. And the stated reason was because these countries' authorities have shown no interest in controlling the spread of the virus. Mm, because yeah. of that, travelers coming from those countries must serve a 14 day stay home notice. Of course, this right. was like maybe like 10 days ago, and a lot has changed in 10 days. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so my sister was saying that uh, France has basically gone into full lockdown. Like, you are not allowed to be outside. And Germany is... um, So the German word for this is Ausgangssperre, literally lock exit, right? It's a a lockdown (laughs) on exiting your home. And the Germans are practicing um, Kontaktsperre which is lock on a lockdown on contact. You can be outside, but you cannot be in contact with somebody from outside your household. Right. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, and I think, I mean, for sure there is some cultural element to this because I do not think you could impose such a measure on the French. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I think... Yeah, I think, like, effectively, if you wanted an effective contact lockdown, you would need a movement lockdown. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and that is yeah. definitely you know it's the same for Spain and Italy and yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I mean, the US is really not not taking this seriously at all. It's, nope. it's really very very scary how nope. how this is happening in the US. So yeah. Uh yeah, and I mean. Honestly, we we don't really have to go through all all that territory because I'm sure it's been it's all over every newspaper at the moment. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. I mean, frankly, in Singapore, the changes have been. It's not as it's not like snap fingers sudden. It is fast, but it's not been. Yeah. The speed of the changes have not been very drastic, and frankly, until um, the first week or even mid March. Um, Life was pretty much normal. Singapore right. kind of went into went into this kind of overdrive when Malaysia imposed the when Malaysia imposed its lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And the Malaysian lockdown, I think, was partly precipitated by um, the religious gathering. Yes, so the public was, conference, right? Yes. Yeah. So there was the public conference where. Um, a bunch of people travel in and then mm-hmm. there was a spread of COVID and then people dispersed all across Southeast Asia. Yep. Uh, yep. And I think that was really when Singapore kind of clamped down. <laughs> on, but even then, it's been gradual. So, um, Well, I mean, a lot of that really, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I mean because in your initial cases are all going to be travel related, right? It's all yes. going to be exported from 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 a source. Yes. And then community spread is what follows after. So, if you know Correct. up until that point everything is is travel related, you can at least clamp down at the source. Correct. But now that you know there's community spread, then serious things have to go into, you know, uh, a lot more sort of severe uh, course of action. So, so I mean, it's interesting because we we had the same thing in New Mexico as well, mm-hmm. right? Where I was at um, the first, I think at least I think the first twenty cases were all travel related, mm-hmm. right? So it's all you know, uh, and because New Mexico being New Mexico, population density is low, mm-hmm. and there's no travel hub, so there's no you know, it's not like say Denver or it's right. not like Phoenix or it's not like uh, Dallas Fort Worth, right? Where you have major air hubs, uh, in in Albuquerque, you know. And, or Santa Fe, for that matter. These are two the two biggest New Mexico cities, and they don't really have major uh, regional hub airports. So, so it's mostly people driving in. I think there was someone who drove in from New York, someone who drove in from California, and those were the initial cases. But then, in, then we started to realize that there was community spread happening when you start seeing unlinked cases showing up, and that's what Singapore has been doing as well. You know, tracking yes. all these uh, links. I don't think the highest single day. Um like community spread kind of cases, uh, unlinked mm-hmm. cases that I've seen is I think fourteen, which is very low. Was that the Jerome Safra thing? No. So the way that the way that um, the Ministry of Health has been reporting it is uh, they used to kind of give one number for all cases and then they would break down the cases. Right, yeah. But around the time yeah. that we passed fifty cases per day, mm-hmm. they stopped reporting mm-hmm. the total number. They just tell oh, you how many are imported of the imported cases, where did they come from, yep. Yep. and then yep. how many are local cases. Of these local cases, how many are linked to existing clusters, and how many are unlinked. Right. One thing that I right. wish they would do is to have a running total of total unlinked cases. Because that would also right. tell you whether the contact tracing... Um, 
like whether the community spread has outpaced the ability of contact tracers to mm-hmm. trace. That's true. Right? Because if, for example, if on a given day you have 14 unlinked cases, you don't know whether mm-hmm. they are going to stay unlinked or whether the next day the contact tracers may have tracked down the links in 10 of those cases. Right? Yeah. And yeah, then absolutely. that actually tells you to what degree do we know of spread out in you know that's really just out there like somebody is mm-hmm. out there and asymptomatic or irresponsible and spreading it yep. Um, yeah um yeah. so i kind of wish they had a number but they don't and um given i mean given the circumstances you can kind of see like every country has put stock in one key aggressive measure or the other so for south korea famously at this point it's testing mm-hmm. they don't know they don't have the ability to contact trace everybody but they have the ability no. to test nearly everybody which in yes. the end has a similar effect yeah i mean they have good you know a, a, i think they nationalized a few private labs as well in order to increase the testing capacity which is really, really very important right you know yep. You only have X number of PCR machines or R- you know, RT-PCR machines in your in your lab, and so the more RT-PCR machines you have, and the more lab techs you have as well, you know, the the, the higher your testing capacity. It's as simple as that. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, Singapore probably has quite a fair bit of testing capacity, but the main strategy so far has been contact tracing. It's just like mm-hmm. very aggressive. Like, if there is a case, we want to know where it came from, and if we can oh, get yeah. everybody who is potentially at risk out of the population, then in theory, all the people circulating around outside, again, if they are not asymptomatic or irresponsible, are in theory safe. Yes, fair enough. Yeah. But of course, this only works to the degree that the contact tracing is very, very thorough. But, you know, Singapore does have a good sort of, you know, surveillance. I mean, we, we call ourselves a, you know, surveillance state. And fair enough. And, you know, but this surveillance network has allowed us to, to very effectively do contact tracing as well. So, you know, pros and cons here and there. It's, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard, to, it's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, you can kind of see why. You can kind of see why other countries would be very resistant or hesitant to allow this kind of oh, sweeping yeah. power. Um, which, again, goes back to the idea that a lot of this, the way that countries have been dealing with this, has been cultural, right? Because yes, you would not be able to, you know, if you have all these articles out there now, like, oh, you know, Singapore, has, this is how Singapore has handled the coronavirus, but the lessons may not be applicable for all countries, or the same thing for South Korea, or the same <laughs> thing for Taiwan, or the same thing for Japan or China. Or China or, and China is like mm-hmm. the most, yep. is regarded as like the most outlier case, right? Like, oh my God, we could never impose a full lockdown, <laughs> says, <laughs> says all well, the Well, look at what Italy has had to resort to. So, yeah, you know. basically. And so, Spain, for that matter. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so it's kind of like, well, either you, you find something that works... Or mm-hmm. you just pick up the pieces afterwards, pretty much. Well, I mean, 
to, to be fair, there is no one size fits all solution, right? It's it's we what we have are a suite of tools, you know, yes. that have different levels of efficacy, and that it's you pick and choose your best option that, that, yes. that fits you and your your cultural values. And I think, and then you run with to it. To be fair, this particular set happens to fit Singapore's toolbox very well. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, we have the surveillance infrastructure in place. That's number one. Number two, you know, we have people who generally a population that's willing to comply with these kinds of situations as well. We're not, you know, spring breakers in Florida. We're not (laughs) spring breakers in Miami, you know. So, yeah. Definitely. I mean, although you you still do kind of see, um, I don't know. I mean, with all these kind of social changes, there is always, not to use like that Malcolm Gladwell term, right? But there is always a tipping point. Because oh, Malcolm Gladwell, please let's not go into Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, sorry. Right. But the idea is like you kind of follow, you know, what people do, and if nobody is masking up, you don't feel obliged to do it. If nobody true, is social distancing, you don't feel obliged to do it. And I mean, the government has actually been pretty explicit about this. Like the new mm-hmm. rules that have come into place in malls because mm-hmm. people can't behave themselves if effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. It's like yeah. We told you to it's... do social distancing and you're not doing it, <laughs> so we will tell you how to do it. Uh, and right. if you right. don't do it, we will find you, which is of course a very preferred tool. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a well-used part of the toolkit basically. Yeah. And it it's it's again it's kind of um it's okay let me put it this way it is very hard to separate the singaporean from the shopping mall <laughs> and i think that's partly i mean i think I, it's true i think that's partly why there has been so much more hand holding when it comes to this is how you practice social distancing in a shopping mall. One person per 16 yeah. square feet, right? If you do not do this <laughs> and you are caught, we will fine you or we will shut you down. If you do not do this yep. and you are found to be a site of transmission, we will ch- we will prosecute you, <laughs> right? Like Yeah, I mean, I the, the whole idea of the, the what... Thousand dollar fine and potential jail time, and you know, as if you, if you are found flouting this, it seems to me to be extremely draconian. But I mean, uh, I mean, I guess this is in part also just because Singaporeans are stubborn as hell. Yes, but I mean, I'm at this point. This is this is kind of where, like, depending on where you are, you may or may not wish to tread lightly right because on the one hand you could say many of the same things about about <laughs> New York and absolutely um, no actually what I would like to see you know if this sort of you know new ruling is is prosecuted um, heavily right so if yep. a lot of people are fine with this I would like to see the demographic breakdown of who gets charged and who has been flouting this this regulation I mean I'm sure it will I'm, I'm sure they will be um very open about it because did you I mean I've been kind of open is a relative term but okay um, no I mean open is a relative term but I mean the way that I would put it is uh, there was somebody who didn't declare his travel history to Indonesia 
Right. Um, yeah. And he was, you know, normally this kind of thing, right? All the they've been very careful about the privacy of all the patients, right? No, in this case, it's not been at all. But right? they yeah. were like, no, this is his name, and his yep. yep, and we have like <laughs> cut short his leave to remain in Singapore. Like once <laughs> this thing is over, he will basically be asked to leave because this yeah. is, you know, yeah, and uh, multiple cases of like um, work passes being revoked and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's also the fact that you know, in East Asia historically, we've had to deal with SARS and in South Korea, MERS. So you know, I we have th- yeah. all these contingencies in place as well. The US is really not prepared for this, which is kind in of unfortunate. Anyway, yep, it's it's very unfortunate because, like, from what I remember from SARS, um, the US was not hit that badly. I think they had like twenty-seven. It was cases Canada that was hit badly. It was yeah, Toronto Canada was, that was hit really, correct because really Canada had somebody yeah. in the Metropole Hotel where the yeah. super spreader kind of spread it everywhere. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, like, you know, I remember as a kid, like, the US playing a leadership role, um, mm. which, I mean, it's not just with, it's not just with COVID, but, like, in every sense of the word, the US has basically abdicated that role. So that's a, um, yeah. Let's just leave it at that. How about? Yeah, let's 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 yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, well, you know, the thing is like the US as a country was not affected by SARS, but US scientists were very active in oh yeah, absolutely in sussing it out. So, um, okay. Anyway, well, we should probably just leave COVID aside. Yes, there's a lot to talk about, but I don't think any of us have any particular expertise in this area to uh, yes. expound at greater length. Yes, and also, frankly, I don't think anybody really wants to hear that much about COVID. It's just no, there's enough <laughs> enough chat about this elsewhere already. So yes, I'm sure. Okay, um, so while you are stuck, what have you been <laughs> doing? I mean, I've been surprisingly busy. Although you know, to be fair, who can really be productive in these very troubling and very stressful times? Um, are you trying to be Stephen? Uh, I brought back. A- Maybe. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I did bring back a ton of work to do. And, you know, like any uh, self-respecting scientist, I also have a huge amount of backlog that I, at some point, I need to get, you know, down into clearing. But, you know, I'm taking my own sweet time with that as well. You, you know, just... data sets to analyze, papers to be written. As so, a, yeah. Just for context, can you quickly describe what kind of scientist you are and what kind of science you do? Uh, it's really quite hard to 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 sort of you know uh, 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 and sort of summarize. But basically, I am to some extent an ecologist. I'm to some extent an evolutionary biologist. Uh, uh, I'm a molecular ecologist. Some people would say as well. So basically, I do a lot of stuff related to birds, well, birds and other organisms. Um, uh, I do a lot of work dealing with counting birds, which is a surprisingly technical uh, field. <laughs> Once you get into the weeds, right? It's not just you know looking out the window, going, oh look, there's a bird, that's one. Um, it's a lot of statistical, you know, sort of tips and tools and tricks that you use in order to quantify uncertainty and to try to adjust for the fact that you know detection is often imperfect. A lot of my work deals with DNA, so I look at you know um, how things evolve 
how populations change over time. And I also have a chronic problem with saying no. So because of that, I tend to take on new projects a lot and then you know, these pile on and they, they need to be moved on at some point. So, yeah. Right. So do you have an example of what kind oh, of... Okay, I mean, this is kind of like a very academic, you know, question to ask. But yeah, what is no, your... It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. What is your primary or what are your like primary research questions? And what is the oh, question no, no, you're that's a bad answer? question. That's... That's bad a really question? bad. Well, uh, as in badly phrased, not necessarily or too um, broad. No, I mean w- when you look at my entire sort of CV and you know the projects I have on my on my lab right now, there, there's no real one question that sort of encompasses all of them. This is in part because you know you go through school and you 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 pick up projects sort of in an ad hoc manner. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so I think I have sort of three separate categories of 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 of, of research questions that I try to address. Um, Three, two, I don't know. We'll, 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 we'll get through this. You know, it's like the, the, the whole uh, Spanish Inquisition. There are three, no, four. Um, okay. So one of my big questions that I'd like to address is looking at how uh, birds respond to urbanization. Okay. This is a huge question, right? Um, and this manifests itself in many, many different ways. So the whole counting birds part is one, one, you know, one, one side of the story. We're looking at, you know, uh, what are bird population sizes in urban areas? And this, this is a question that you know is extremely important and relevant because if you don't know your population size, you cannot number one assess how you know your population trends are. That's number one. Number two, you know how do you decide what is rare, what is not, uh, what is yeah, and you know uh, do do sort of proportions change depending on how landscapes have changed. These are all important questions that. If you don't have that sort of most basic data, which is how many birds are there, then it's going to be much harder to to make good decisions. Uh, the other thing I'm working on is looking at uh, uh, bird window collisions. So that's another part of you know how do birds interact with urban environments, right? Okay. This is an antagonistic interaction, and so we're trying to quantify how this is happening in Southeast Asia. You know, we, this is this is relatively well documented in the West, at least in America. But in Southeast Asia, this is a virtual sort of black hole topic. No one really knows anything about it. So trying to get some data and, and, and do some stuff. And then, of course, I work on the genetics of forest-dwelling birds in Singapore as well. Singapore's interesting because it's a, it's, it's a tropical country. It's on the equator. We have tropical rainforests, but it's mostly urban. So how do forest birds, you know, survive in this kind of context? And, you know, we use genetic tools to sort of figure out why this is the case. So that's, that's, that's just one part of my research. That's the whole idea of, you know, uh, urbanization and urban ecology. There's another part of my research that looks more at uh, agriculture. Singapore doesn't really have agriculture, but I'm working in Sumatra at the moment okay. um, to look at how uh, basically uh, in the oil palm plantations, how changing the planting strategies affects the community ecology of birds within the oil palms, and that's a project I, I, I desperately need to to move uh, to move on because you know I'm not the lead on this project, and the leads are trying to push me to get the data analyzed and published as soon as possible. And then now a lot of my PhD work deals with evolution, so we're looking at the evolution of this group of birds called pitters. They are really colorful, beautiful birds. They live. Uh, it's, this genus of birds has a distribution from Africa all the way out to uh, Solomon Islands. It's about 14-ish, 15 species. Um, and uh, 
you know, the evolution is very poorly understood, number one. And number two, there are a lot of aspects of the biology are really interesting. And uh, I'm hoping to dig into that for my dissertation work. And that's just, you know, part of my reason. I've got other side projects, but those are not quite so relevant at the moment. I mean, relevance is relative. D- uh, deeply relative. I mean, I'm working yeah. on a project on crabs right now, but that's... So I'll, I'll leave it aside for the moment, so yeah. Okay. So we right now you have like a journal article that you have been asked to review while you are stuck in a Oh that's the other thing. So one of my one of my uh, well my, my honest uh, supervisor, so my previous boss, he I, I you know I messaged him a while back saying, Hey, I'm coming back to Singapore to tie out this whole coronavirus situation. He's like, Oh that's great, you know, and he, he didn't say anything more after that. And on the day I uh, I landed in Singapore I received an email in my inbox saying uh, you know, so and so has has invited you to review this article. Uh, it's due in fourteen days' time. Would you accept it? So it's a trap, basically, because my boss knows I'm going to be stuck in self isolation for fourteen days. Uh, he knows that I can't go anywhere, and he knows that I have no excuse to give for refusing to accept this review. So I I have an article to review. So this is you know an important part. I mean. I, 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 you know, this is not a bad thing, right? This is actually a very important part of the scientific process. Uh, you know, scientists can't just send their, you know, research out to publishers and publishers publish it wholesale. Yeah. They have to go through a process of review. So, uh, you know, as a as a scientifically trained person myself, as a scientist, what part of my duty as a scientist is to, you know, uh, review other scientists' work and to ask questions and to, you know. Basically, the, the, the end goal is to try to improve the research of, of other scientists. Um, and this happens in a variety of ways, right? But primarily, when you review a paper, you, know, you go through the methods, you, you know, check to see that you know, assumptions inherent in the methods are, 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 are addressed, right. whether the research question is answered in the first place, whether the research question can even be answered in the first place. And these are, you know, all part of the process of, of, of peer review. It's, 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 it's actually very fun, but it's also very, very stressful sometimes as well, because you really have to, you know, be critical and, 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 and yeah, think deeply about what I think about something what else doing. is that every paper that you're looking at, you're on the edge of what we know. And so yes. there, is a, there is that need to be critical because... Yes. The okay, the person writing the paper doesn't really know anything either. They just have a little bit more data than you do. Well, so. I mean, yeah, f- fair enough. Well, the, uh, okay, that that, that's debatable, harsh. right? You know, yeah, I, that's I, I, I don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, some some people genuinely are you know mega minds. They know a lot of stuff. Yeah. I'm I'm not that smart, but you know, at least the least I can do is look at the methods and look at you know, do the methods address the question. Yep. Uh, and you know, and as with any method, there are always caveats. And are these caveats addressed, or are these you know, have they been ignored? Uh, you know, does it lead to justifiable conclusions that we can accept? Because no, no paper is perfect. This is part of our training as a scientist. My training as a scientist yep. as well. A lot of what we do as uh, scientists is we, what, especially in you know, university, in undergrad to grad school, we do this thing called journal club. Okay. So what we do <laughs> is you know, we sit okay. down. It's, it's, it's literally called Jonathan. We sit down, you know, with our colleagues from the lab or from other labs and so on, and then we discuss papers that just came out in the, in the literature. And so what we do is, we, you know, we dig into the methods, we dig into the, the, the results, and we see, okay, you know, do these methods, uh, do these results 
you know, tell us anything or do they cohere with what the, 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 the people writing the paper say? And you learn as a course of, you know, or through the course of education that, you know, every single paper has some kind of sleight of hand going on. Right. There's some kind of, you know, smoke and mirrors going on. In, well, I mean, in part because no method's perfect, in part because, you know, some methods have severe limitations that, you know, yeah. I, I think the thing that is kind of probably poorly understood is that a paper can be flawed and still useful. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. And but also there are some papers that are complete garbage and they still make it into, into the press. Correct. Uh, and this is perhaps a flaw of the peer review process as well, yep. right? Peer review is not perfect. If you get two peer reviewers who say either A, are not experts in that particular field and so are not entirely familiar with all the nitty-gritty of the, the methodology or you know, the system, uh, or B, you just have peer reviewers who are not doing their job properly, you sometimes get really, really shitty papers getting out into the literature and sometimes into very prestigious journals. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, I think part of, um, part of why like science can be so poorly understood and communicated is that at the point where it reaches the popular press, it's often yeah. seen as set in stone. Yeah. When yeah. Well, I've got a lot to say about this, actually, especially <laughs> okay. in like, the recent coronavirus situation. <laughs> okay. So, you know, there have been a lot of, you know, claims coming out in yep. the press about certain things related to coronavirus. The, the one big one is the whole thing about hydroxychloroquine. That's where which, I was, you know, yeah, that's what I was thinking. The American president has been, has been trumpeting this whole idea that, you know, uh, the, 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 the drug hydroxychloroquine is a miracle cure for, for COVID-19. Um, and, and some of this sort of claim comes from a paper that uh, a group of French researchers published not too long ago. Now, um, and, and again, you know, this paper is in a peer-reviewed journal. It is, you know, in a, in a, in a, it's, it's published online. Anyone who's an academic can access the paper and read it. Um, it has, and this, this is, pharmaceuticals is not my field. But right. from what I've seen online, it seems that there are some issues with this paper already starting to emerge. Okay. Uh, number one, one of the authors is also the journal editor of the journal that the paper was published in. Okay. Now, that's a huge conflict of interest. Yes. And in general, the unspoken rule is that journal editors do not publish in their own, in the journals that they edit. Right. Uh, this is made sense. even worse by the fact that the paper spent one day in peer review. Now that is, by any stretch of the imagination, unbelievably short. I've had papers that have languished in peer review for months. Never a paper that has come back within a single day saying this is perfect. Please, please publish. There's always a flaw with a, yep. with any with any manuscript you send it. So the fact that you know number one, one of the authors, or at least I think one of the authors is the. The journal, the other author, the, the the senior author, I believe, is either a student or someone who is linked to the journal editor in chief, and the fact that the turnaround time was extremely short raises doubts. Uh, and this was uh, and and recently, a, f a couple of French uh, uh, scientists on Twitter have also pointed out that at least one of the authors has had rather dubious uh, credentials attached to him as well. Right. In that you know the uh, has been known to publish. Uh, I wouldn't say falsify, but suspicious data sets. Right. And so, so that's a problem, right? You know, in science, a lot of, a surprising amount of science is put on this idea of trust. Yep. This idea that, you know, 
uh, when I put something out in the in, in, in a peer-reviewed journal, I have done my due diligence, you know, and I have I have not falsified the data. Uh, and, and that actually is a big problem because, you know, there are always people who would try to game the system and what happens when, when this happens? But I mean, it goes back to what you were saying, right, which is that it's the unspoken rule is that you do not publish in a journal that you edit for the very obvious reason that if <laughs> trust is an issue, right, um, peer review, yes. I mean, obviously it's an imperfect system, but part of what peer yes. review is about is to eliminate that kind of um, conflict of interest where in theory you have an external... Okay, I was going to say in theory you have an unbiased reviewer, but in, you have an external reviewer. How about that? Right? Um, right. Several. Right, but you know, and the problem is also in some fields, the field is so small that, you know, <laughs> external reviewers could entirely have a conflict of interest. Either they're working on similar systems and they're trying to compete to publish, you know, on the same topic, or say they have beef, you know, and basically, you know, science is a human endeavor, right? So scientists have personal relationships and personal, you know, bad relationships with, with other scientists as well. So if, say, and there's someone I don't like and I get this paper to review, right? If I wanted to be unprofessional, I could be deeply unprofessional in my review. I mean, this... Oh, okay, so this always... I've, I've told this story before. I mean, you've heard it for sure, but this is something that I kind of like to repeat because, like, for me as a non-scientist, right, um, it is a... It's something that you don't have to think about most of the time. But um, right. when I was an undergrad, I took a class that was actually effectively uh, it's not I wouldn't say it's a research review and it's not journal club right it's not new research mm-hmm. so basically mm-hmm. it was a class about um, the the research behind language acquisition specifically acquisition of sound um, yeah. so how do we as language learners whether first or second language how do we discern one sound from another um, and yeah. how do we kind of like make distinctions between sounds? Because if you think about the fact that like the physical sound waves, right, they are not going to be mm-hmm. the same every single time, right? And so Absolutely. how do we yeah. mentally classify and segment the sounds and how do we know what uh, factors m- matter in each language? So anyway, yes. um, we were looking at one paper... And this was actually research done on a corpus. So what right. they did was they hooked up like six children to um, microphones and they would monitor them for several hours um, a week for weeks at a time, right? And then after that, they collect oh, all wow. the audio uh, and then they transcribe all of it and then they run whatever, um, you know, they basically extract whatever data they want out of it. Right, mm-hmm. and so there were six children in this corpus, but in the paper that we read, there were only three subjects studied, which is ah. kind of like whatever science you're doing, n equals to three is a horrifically low number. Sorry, uh, I'm going to digress back to the whole um, chloroquine paper as well. That was another criticism. I think okay. there were only twenty participants in that study, and of those participants. I think at least one died and another few dropped out of the study and they only reported the positive results. Right. And so, uh, uh, which, which gets to another big problem with clinical studies. Mm-hmm. The whole question of, you know, if I am a pharmaceutical company who's sponsoring this research, 
and I have a vested interest in seeing a certain drug, you know, a certain therapy being made commercial, mm-hmm. I can try to force scientists to behave in ways that are deeply unethical in order to get my research out. I'm not saying this, this research is unethical, but I'm saying that you know, reporting bias can have a severe impact on the outcomes of a study as well. This is uh, much more deeply uh, discussed in uh, Ben Goldacre's book, uh, Bad Farmer. Yep. And I strongly recommend any listeners to, to pick up the book. It's a very, very, very good it is book. Very he's, good. A, he's a and practicing also, clinician at Oxford University. Correct. And I mean, in, in this particular, you know, while we are on this COVID vein, he is an epidemiologist, so. Uh, yes. And a medical doctor. So. Yes. Um, yeah, and his yeah. the preceding book, Bad Science, is very good mm-hmm. as well. So bad science yes, is about science in general. Bad pharma is specific yeah. to um, a lot of these practices that you see in the research that underlies the pharmaceutical industry. Clinical um, trials especially. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, of course, he's a doctor and he's an epidemiologist. Like, he's not anti... He's not like, oh, big pharma is bad kind of thing. But it's just yeah. like, this is what you should know when you read all this stuff about how such right. and such thing is effective against such and such condition. Yeah. Sorry, I, 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 yeah, I, I pulled you away from your uh, uh, corpus uh, study. Yep. So this, okay, so here's the thing. In linguistics, the N, right, the number of subjects is chronically low. Um, <laughs> we, the, most of the time, we saw studies with 20 subjects. Like, that was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But in this particular case, it was three. And of course, corpus linguistics generates a huge amount of data. And so it's understandable right. if you can't, you know, if you're collecting data every week for like 12 months or 18 months or whatever it is, um, <laughs> there are not that many grad students to go around. So you kind of make do <laughs> with what you have, right? But uh, in this case, the N equals to three and the study yep. was conducted at Brown. And so the paper actually said like, oh, two of our subjects, um, they grew up in an environment where the parents spoke something approximating General American. Um, and one of the, one of the three um, grew up in an environment where the parents spoke like um, a strong or, you know, strong-ish New England dialect. Okay. And okay. you're like, how do you make any generalizations based on this kind yeah. of data and then you know you so the class right was you read this research and then similar to journal club except that this is for the established evidence base right for this particular mm-hmm. field so the professor is kind of taking us through okay this is what we found out first this is um, the evidence base for some of the most common questions and then for the assignment it was like design an experiment to get the data um, for a question that you are curious about, right? And um, yeah. what we were we were looking at this paper, and we were—I mean, it was interesting. I forget what the question was exactly. It was something to do with first language acquisition. Um, mm-hmm. Like, at what point do babies start distinguishing between like such and such sound, or at what point do they start, you know, producing like yes. different types of or classes of sounds right Mm -hmm. Um, and of course we were all over this the whole thing like 
Firstly, if your corpus has six kids, where are the other three kids? <laughs> and if you have six kids to choose from, why do you choose three kids with two different dialects represented? And yeah. like, you can run these numbers all you like and you may have collected a huge amount of data, but the fact remains you only had three subjects and therefore like, can anything really be like, you know, um... We all we can do is we can take this data at face value, but we can't really yeah. make any generalizations based on it, right? And absolutely, yeah, of course. And we were all like, you know, heated, um, and like <laughs> just like ranting about all this stuff. And then the professor is like, "Well, you know, you are all young and idealistic and like for science, but maybe he has a tenure review, and he decided." Um, I'm halfway mm -hmm. through this data set and uh, we have enough to publish. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that, that's, that's another very real concern. It's not something that you know, affects me directly, but no, it's true, right? right? Pe and people have lives to live and people have tenure clocks to, to, to meet. So yeah. <laughs> and it goes back to the thing, like a study can be flawed and still useful, but you have to know sure. as a scientist how to interpret that data. Well, I mean, number one, the data must be correct in the first yes. place. The data must not be falsified, right? Yeah. Which is something I'll get into. There's actually been a very recent big controversy that's just been rocking the scientific world, but I'll get into that later. And number two, the analyses have to at least, you know, be fair and they have to take into account some of the problems of the methods that are being applied here and they have to account for some of the noise and the data, assuming the data is correct. So lots of factors, but fundamentally a lot of this is built on trust. It's built on the fact, in, on, this, on this, this mutual understanding that yes, we are engaged in an imperfect enterprise, mm -hmm. but we're doing all this in good faith. This kind of goes back to like epistemology class, right? It's like... It, it really does. Right? It's like when your science teachers tell you like, oh, these are the three laws of... <laughs> these are Newton's laws of motion. Like, do you... Right. Do you believe that because you did the experiment and you saw it? Do you yeah. have to retrace yeah. all of Newton's experiments in order to believe it? Or will a simplified version do? Is it sufficient to read it from a book? Right, yeah. I mean... That's... Yeah. Well... Yeah, so on the issue of trust, I get to this uh, issue that has on Twitter been confirmed, the hashtag PuritGate. PuritGate? Uh, this concerns PuritGate, P-R-U-I-T-T. So oh, this concerns okay. a scientist, Jonathan Purit. He's a very prominent spider uh, behavioral biologist. Okay. Uh, so he looks, he's, he's, an, uh, he's a behavioral evolutionary biologist. Uh, and it has recently come to light that a lot of his data sets have had problems. Okay. Um, now, I'm not going to claim that they were falsified because investigations are still ongoing. Um, but basically, one of his former grad... Uh, well, a, a, a former grad student who used some of his data, data provided by him, realized that there were huge issues in the spreadsheet that she was given. She did an investigation, and then she reported that, you know, it's very likely that some of the data had problems. Uh, she found lots of duplicated values uh, in the data set which could not have come out of random chance. Okay. 
So basically that paper was, retract was retracted, then another paper got retracted, and another paper got retracted. So right now, we're still in, in the midst of this controversy. Uh, if you look up ParadeGate on Twitter, you'll, 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 you'll get lots of hot takes and opinions, but it's still not, not a resolved matter. Uh, Jonathan Pruitt is still, I think, a professor at McMaster University, and he's very highly regarded in his field. Uh, and you know, it would be unfair on my part to cast any aspersions or judgment at this stage, but this is the problem, right? Because science is built on trust, the moment people start to doubt the quality of your data, that's going to have severe impacts on whether or not people are going to take your, not just your research output, but also your field seriously enough. Right. Anything to do with behavior tends to be a bit of a tenuous field sometimes because behavior is highly plastic. Yeah. Quantifying behavior is difficult. It's not, you know, it's it's not that you know, not all of this is complete bunker. But the the, the fact is that there's a lot of noise yeah. mixed in with the signal as well. So, you know, when 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 a prominent researcher and a, a researcher on whom large parts of the the, the, the body of work and the theory uh, is built, you know, is found to have falsified data, that really really affects the sort of you know. Uh, 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 yeah, the, the whole idea of trust and the whole idea of you know, um, sort of the, the integrity of the field—it's really very damaging. I mean, I might be putting you on the spot here, but um, what other kind of precedent is there for this? Kind? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of cases of falsified. Uh, okay, no, I wouldn't say falsified. Lord. There are lots of cases, right? Of um, professors and researchers who have had to retract their work due to. Um, either discrepancies yeah. or you know just straight out like falsified data or whatever other reason but um since i mean since you you talk about how um it has an impact on the field right has a field ever actually come back from being discredited in this way because at a minimum anti-vaxxers sorry <laughs> 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 okay. For all the wrong reasons. Okay. Well, yeah. For all the absolute wrong reasons. Yes. Well, sadly, I mean that was right? not where That's I was going, you but you're right. I mean at a minimum all the research would have to be redone. And you would have to set a, you have to redo the research base, the evidence base in effect. Well, I don't know of any particular examples, but, you know, at least, you know, with, with behavioral, evolutionary behavioral biology, it's not so narrow a field that they're only working on one system. So Jonathan Pruitt works primarily with spiders. Uh, and, you know, not all of behavioral biology is spiders. Right. So thankfully, you know, you know, it's not like the field has been torn down and it's very firm and it has to be rebuilt from first principles a la René Descartes. But, you know, it's, 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 uh, I think right now we're at a stage where we have to evaluate. Okay, how much of what we know was based on faulty data? And so, so this is this, and this is not my field, right? right. But I, you know, my sympathies and you know, my commiserations are with the poor scientists who have to, to to pick through what's left, and to go. Okay, of what we know, what we we thought we knew about you know spider behavior, what can we trust, and what can we continue to. To, to accept moving forward. Uh, with evolutionary biology, at least the stakes are lowish. You know, can you imagine if this was the case of an applied field like medicine? Yep. Right? If a drug, you know, that was touted in the literature as being, you know, really effective for treating certain things is found to actually have, you know, 
or if the effect size were found to have been the product of manipulation, then what do we do? I mean, and the thing is... Has everything we've seen so far been the placebo effect? You know? It's not uh, It's not just a purely academic discussion as well, because like Bad Pharma, right? He actually talks about actual cases um, where yeah, yeah. basically the numbers have been kind of jiggered to get a product to market uh, that doesn't deserve to be there. Uh, and actually, okay, so incidentally... Exactly. This is um, this is kind of crazy. This is not strictly related to research methods, but it is related to testing methods. Um, there was a book, and I cannot remember what it is called. Um, I'll you know, you can check the show notes afterwards, and there will be a a link there. But um, there is a book uh, that I read recently about generic drugs. And um, it basically covered, mm. right, the generic drug industry in primarily in India, um, but also, you know, in a broader sense, right, um, the idea of generic drugs as a whole and how the yeah. testing for generic drugs differs from that of the original um, branded drug that was released under patent. So, um, oh, the... The book is called Bottle of Lies and it's by Catherine Eben. Right. Yeah, Eben, Eben, Iban, I don't know. Anyway, um, let's just say Eben. So. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So, what right. is. Okay, I should report that the signal is. The connection is starting to die. Okay. Okay, we'll see how long it lasts. And you know what? I mean, we've been talking yeah. for over an hour. Oh, okay, at this I think point. I've lost you. Or close to an hour. So, if it dies, we might just stop here. (laughs) Hello. Hello. Okay. I guess we are stopping. Well, I'm back. Sorry about that. Okay, give me a hello. Minute. Hello, 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 hello. Uh, all right. Yeah, I think we should start winding this down. Hello, we should, hello, start, yeah. we, we should start winding this down. I actually, yes, we we made a full. We hour. have been talking for a good hour. Yeah, so. I was actually gonna say like you know if you disconnect, maybe we just end it there. But uh, let's just round it off. So anyway, yeah. um, yeah. I was on. Let me do a finger snap. No, come on. Yep, okay. So, um, I was talking about uh, Bottle of Lies by Catherine Eben. And um, basically, mm-hmm. she talked about the differences in the rigor of the trials that the first, um, the original drug has to go through, and then subsequent generic drugs. And effectively, right, what the generic drug makers can do is to basically dope the tests a little so yeah so the original drug um it basically you have to show that it doesn't have any harmful side effects um if there are side effects Mm -hmm. they have to be documented um they you need to show the correct you know you need to show that the you know what is the effective um dose right and then you need to show as well the the dose right when it's taken um, how, what the pharmaco, 
kinetics of it are like how does it go through mm-hmm. the body and what the body how the body right. responds to it um, yeah. and so they will look at things like for example what's the concentration of the of this drug um, in the body yeah. at a certain time after the drug has been taken right so right. Um, one kind of a very egregious example was with um, extended release drugs so the way that the um, a generic drug is tested, right? Is they just have to show that the active ingredient is in the drug in a similar concentration, the same amount, the same concentration, um, and huh. the release in the body, right? Basically, um, I think they only check for one or two factors. So the peak of the release I think has to be the same and the area under the curve has to be the same so if you think about like the drug you know being distributed throughout the body and how long it stays in the body basically um, the height of it has to be similar and then the the total kind of release has to be similar but the exact curve doesn't have to match is that right Uh, well fair enough so hmm, the idea behind this is that when a when a drug becomes available to be um, produced by a generic drug maker, you don't want the generic drug makers to have to go through the same onerous trials as the original, right? Because the original, of course, yes, they've already you know the drug has been under patent for a certain amount of time. They have monetized it however they want, and then for the generic drug makers, right, the goal is to get a certain amount of these useful drugs to market at a reasonable price, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And yeah. why replicate tests that have already been done? But this, yeah. right, this this particular, like, peak and area under curve test, uh, and of course, I might be getting the details wrong. Like, if you really want the details, read the book. Um, it was designed in an era before extended release drugs. So an extended release drug, okay, um, is a drug that doesn't dispense all the active ingredient at once. It lets mm-hmm. it out through the, through the body slowly over a period of time. And yeah. this has benefits in terms of, you know, instead of taking, in terms of like patient compliance, right? Like where previously a patient might have to take yes. something six times every two hours. Now they can take one pill, yeah. 12 hours, and yeah. they are, they're much better for it. Um, yeah. The thing is, the extended release drugs, right? They would just match the area under curve, but not the release curve. So patients would get a huge hit of the drug at the beginning, oh. and then they would oh, get yikes. a withdrawal afterwards. Oh, oh, that's not good. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I need to pick up this book. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the writing, I'm I'm kind of ambivalent about the the quality of the writing. I'm not saying it's a bad book; it's very well researched. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As a narrative, I think it's a bit stiff, right? But if right. the you know, uh, and again, it's a question of trust, right? Do you trust her research, and do you trust yeah. what she's saying, and do you trust the the way that yeah. she's laying it out? But if you do, um, I mean, even if you don't really, you should probably have some questions at the end. About like is this really the best way to go about, you know, regulating generic drugs? Um, right, right. And there's actually a, so the thing about 
about um, pharmaceutical manufacturing is that you cannot simply test for the active ingredient and you cannot simply test for the components in the drug because in any manufacturing, there is variability, right? Yes. And so um, good manufacturing practices actually require you to document every single thing that happens in the factory. If you make a bad batch and it's thrown out, you have to record it, right? Right, um, of course. If yeah. Yeah. you make a batch that is like just outside your tolerance, right? Um, yeah. You have to record it. And actually, they would actually yes. have like a, you know, based on the market, they would have like a tier A for certain markets that have lower tolerances or, well, I guess lower tolerance, yeah. Oh. And then they would have a second batch for markets that have less strict tolerances, Right, and right. that is okay. just a product okay. of the variability in, in manufacturing. The manufacturing process, that's Correct. true. Okay, wow, yikes. Yeah. Gosh. And the thing is, right, like if the manufacturing facility is based in the US uh, and an FDA inspector comes and they find something so much as like a pile of ashes in the backyard <laughs> and you cannot explain what was burnt and you don't have a record of what was disposed of, that could be enough to get you censured as a factory, uh, as a manufacturing facility. Right. But right. they have no way, the US FDA has no way of regulating factories based overseas. And um, <laughs> one of the kind of horrifying stories in the book, right, was like um, in a place like China, okay, um, the FDA inspectors posted there often don't speak the language and they are basically dependent oh on the hospitality of the very facilities that they are supposed to inspect. And so sometimes several facilities will pool together their money to create one model factory. So <laughs> when one of these facilities is due for an inspection, they go to the airport, they pick up the inspector, they drive the inspector to this model factory, okay, they tour him around this model factory. The inspector is satisfied, goes home. The next FDA inspector comes to see the next factory. They drive him to the same model right. factory and they have no idea because they don't read the language. They don't know where they're going. And um, yeah. Yep. How has John Oliver not covered this in a segment yet? Uh, I'm, I'm, it seems like something he would. I'm, I'm sure if his show goes on long enough, uh, he will eventually. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> inevitable. Right? Yeah. It's gonna at some point. Uh, but anyway, wow, like, back yikes. to the kind of like the area under curve, kind of, you know, and the peak, yes. um, the peak ingredient release kind of thing. That's a case where you yeah. try and create a test that models what you want from the drug, and uh, at some point, you know, people find a way to kind of spike the method. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, you, I mean, basically, when it comes down to it, <laughs> peer review, man. <laughs> you need someone to peer review the drug. Yeah, uh, I mean, th- this 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 is, you know, perennial critique of the scientific process. Um, there are you know efforts underway to 
try to at least solve some aspects of this. So, you know, I mentioned much, much earlier the whole human dimension of, you know, oh, uh, you know, if I don't like someone, and, mm-hmm. you know, I review his paper, I could just as easily give a terrible review, right? Or find ways to give a terrible review. And if the editor's not paying attention to how things are phrased, you know, things could slip by that could lead to a rejection, Um there are, there are lots of aspects to this and one of the things that you know people are increasingly talking about is whether or not we should move towards double blind peer review right. so whether or not you know uh, the reviewers should even know whose work they're reviewing in the first place so of course this is not the panacea to all problems because if you're in a narrow field working on very specific say study groups you can kind of know yeah I mean <laughs> just as you know you know, when I receive a review report and the superior says, please cite papers X, Y, Z, they go, ah, um, I kind of know who it is. Yes, of course. Right. Um, or if they say, you know, please use methods X, Y, Z, and I just read a paper that used exactly these methods. Oh, I think I know who's yeah. reviewing my paper. So it's it's not a perfect process, but at least if we can put in place, you know, control mechanisms to, to number one, make science more, well, I mean, to, to reduce the whole aspect of human bias or at least adverse human bias in, in, in some sense that, that would go some way towards you know uh, uh, helping the other thing about double blind peer review is well it's important because there has been research showing that you know male and female names tend to bias referee reports right Right, so there is sexism in science, you know, conscious or otherwise, and that needs to be addressed as well. And having some kind of blinding effect would also be very useful uh, on the part of a reviewer. You know, I may have unconscious biases that that that, that you know I'm unaware of, and so blocking that information away from me actually might be very useful. Right. In some sense. Right. Anyway, it's probably about time to uh, round up. I think. We'll, we'll be talking long, for an hour and ten hour minutes. Hour and ten minutes. So anyway, um, I don't think we really have a URL yet. <laughs> no. Something that I'll have to uh, figure out. Uh, we probably have some <laughs> show notes that you can look at to uh, refer to some of the stuff yep. that we've talked about. We've discussed. Uh, I don't know when the next yep. episode is coming out. Um, possibly, I w- well, maybe we'll record in a week, maybe in two weeks. I, I, God knows how long. Yeah. COVID will last and how long um, we'll all be stuck at home well I'm back for the whole summer in Singapore so you know uh, recording is going to be a lot easier when I'm in the same time zone so yeah that is very true so uh, yeah everything is is hazy this is yet another podcast started during the COVID-19 outbreak I'm I'm sure we are not the only ones (laughs) I'm sure there have been many podcasts started (laughs) during the COVID (laughs) outbreak um, yeah. Right. And uh, incidentally, just to finish off, so on the MOH website, the Ministry of Health Singapore website, um, there is actually a nice little section on um, clinical evidence summaries. So oh. presumably somebody at MOH is being posted to, to write these up. Um, and it's very simple. Good. It's very simple. It's just like, should X medication be used for COVID-19 should favipravir however you pronounce this be used for COVID-19 should protease inhibitors be used for COVID-19 should remdesivir be used for COVID-19 updated 27 March 2020 should interleukin-6 inhibitors be used for COVID-19 and so on and so forth Um, the interesting thing is these are 
these are clinical evidence summaries, right? So it's not necessarily like yes. it's not like a full blown trial, and uh, you know, like how does this work in this 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 organism, and like what are the like side effects and yada yada? It has none of that. It's like literally doctors out there somewhere being very desperate trying stuff. Yep. Um, yep. But then no, I mean this is important because you have yes. to know your audience, right? You Correct. know, if you're if you're looking at at, at, at fellow pharma- pharmacists, you're publishing the literature. Correct. But if it's doctors, you know, Correct. you're trying to get the information out too. Then you know you don't have to do, delve into the technicalities. Correct. Of, of, of so things. somebody at MOH is reviewing the literature and like typing up this stuff, uh, and it's just yeah. very quick. It's like yes, no. I mean, it's not Good. literally yes, no, right? But it's just like basically <laughs> here's what they found, and it may or may not be useful, <laughs> yeah. kind of yeah. thing. Um, and right. I think no, I think that's great I think that's that's you know it's good that MOH is doing this right and I mean along those lines like after everything we've been talking about ultimately there's also a difference between what you can prove and what is clinically significant absolutely yeah yeah yeah. So anyway, and it is there's more to talk about. You it's know, I think we can devote a whole a whole episode to talk about this because I wanted to talk about the idea of preprints as well yes. and how preprints shaped a lot of the initial coverage of the science on COVID nineteen and how some of it may have been misinterpreted here and there. Yep. But we'll save that for another time. Yep. And anyway, we haven't talked about crows, but um, if we do our episode, we haven't talked about crows having sex. That's true. <laughs> Uh, if we do an episode next week, you will still be in peer review. So, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, I will. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, uh, we'll figure out when the next episode is. All right. Yes. Bye bye. All right. Till next time. Bye bye. <laughs>